Outside the box. Hello, and welcome to this month's Outside the Box. Here to tell me what month that actually is, is Jen. It's April. Hooray, and Mickey. Oi, oi, April confirmed. (laughs) We've got some stuff to talk about. Not as much stuff as perhaps we were hoping for. Hopefully in May's Outside the Box, we will be able to talk about... Fargo, which the official date is it now comes out in spring and by the end of April or the start of May, spring will nearly be over. So I would hope that we would have seen some of it by then. The Mayor of Easttown, HBO crime drama starring Kate Winslet going on Sky. I think that might even have, might even start between us recording this and us releasing this. So we'll be able to talk about that. Handmaid's Tale starts on Hulu in America on April the 28th. So I don't know when it's coming to Channel 4, but hopefully soon after that. And the one thing we do know is that Lupin, the uh, Netflix, are now saying summer for the second half of that series. Wait a minute. I cannot believe something you have missed off that list. This time with Alan Partridge is back at the what? end of April. I didn't even yes, know Yes, it that. is. Yes, it is. And although I am excited about that, I do feel that this time with Alan Partridge has already peaked for me well I don't I don't know unless they have Martin Brennan Martin might be back I don't know how they can ever (laughs) top that because it's genuinely one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life okay in that case I'll tell you what Jen and I will watch the six episodes of the new series you just watch that one again six times and then we'll talk (laughs) about it Mick I think I watched it about I'm not joking (laughs) about a thousand times it's so fucking funny Jen she's watching it now (laughs) anyway I might cut a bit in if I can find it or just at the end, end this with me singing The Men Behind the Wire. Let's talk about something that is on now. May as well start with Line of Duty since it is the UK's biggest drama officially. I think the figures, viewing figures are absolutely through the roof. And if you go on Twitter on a Sunday night, I'd say approximately nine in ten people are talking about Line of Duty. Mickey, you haven't watched it, I know, because you're still quite behind in your Line of Duty viewing. I've seen uh, series four and then nothing past that. Okay, well, uh, to be honest, this might seem like it was spoilery, but I think actually you will have forgotten what we talk about here. So, or just sit with your hands over your ears while Jen and I talk about series six, which I have now seen four episodes of. Yes, I'm fully up to date. Yeah. Okay, great. So series six starring the usual crew, those six beautiful eyeballs, balls of adrian dunbar vicky mcclure and martin compston joined by the nominal lead of this series which is kelly mcdonald and i'm going to get onto the concept of the lead in a bit the individual case they are investigating is now so indistinguishable from what they've actually been investigating in the large in the last five series it's almost not worth going into what the individual case is And this series in particular seems to have an element of, do you remember this person from series three? Do you remember this person from series one? Fucking hell. And the answer for me is almost always no. Yes, (laughs) agreed. Who is that? I'm going to have to go and Google. And on that note... Hang on, I feel like I could join in this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, I would like to mention the sad passing of Sarah Hughes, who did the Guardian's 
episode recap of Line of Duty since the very start. And when only I and my friend Paul Kirkley were the only people I knew who watched this, I actually read that a lot and found it particularly useful for bits that I'd gone, have I misunderstood that? So yes, she will be missed. So I should say that now. But what it means is I basically now no longer watch Line of Duty in an any way serious form. It reminds me a little bit of another thing that I was a very early adopter of, which is Breaking Bad, which is the more popular it got, the more populist it got. And I feel like Line of Duty is there a little bit. It is playing to the crowds, to the fans, to the people who have some sort of spirograph pinboard behind them of who's suspects and whatever and my brain isn't that like that so i largely watch it now to hit spirograph hang on spirograph do you mean spider Spider diagram that's what i mean (laughs) so i no longer watch it for that now i watch it to hear adrian dunbar say ah would you wished which is glorious when he's in it in this one and he did a really epic mother of god at the end of, of episode four i think in making it like this it's giving the lead characters the guest lead actors less to do to be honest i feel like kelly mcdonald is being criminally underused in this in the same way that i don't think they made the best use of stephen graham in the last series but apart from that i'm having fun watching it i tweeted at the end of the last episode line of duty you absolute bastard because like it is it's exactly what you've said it is it's just um it is so formulaic and kind of ridiculous and populist and i i can't i don't understand how adrian dunbar can with any like how many how many takes must it take for him to say i'm interested in one thing and one thing only and that's catching bent coppers like how 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 can he still do that (laughs) how can he still deliver that line I don't understand. It makes no sense to me. But it is like absolutely it, fucking In the back of his lovely. mind, when he says that, he must see someone ticking bent coppers in their <laughs> line of duty yeah. bingo game. That they, line yeah. of duty, you know, yeah. No, absolutely. It's, I, I am having lovely fun watching it, though. It is great fun. But I have to say, I find it like incredibly stressful to watch. Like it actually makes me quite anxious sometimes. And the last episode of it, I don't know if we're spoiling this, so I won't say what happened. But in the last episode, episode four, there's an incident that I found, like, absolutely, like, nail-bitingly terrifying to watch. Like, just incredibly stressful. I believe Martin Compson tweeted, not that I saw it, but I saw it in something else, that he had tweeted that he thought it was the best episode that they'd ever done. It was action-packed. Yeah, I don't know if it was the best like critically the best but it was exciting it was certainly the most conventionally straight up thriller episode which is you know a great thing but that's not necessarily what i liked about line of duty at the start what i really liked about line of duty as a start is it was it created really complicated and flawed female characters and like i say Mm. having kelly mcdonald sitting there with not a huge amount to do she does do a rather epic in-car shit fit at some point and i do love an in-car shit fit Obviously, top two ever are Carver when he comes out of dropping that kid off in care in the wire and loses his shit in the car. And the other one is uh, when the character John in the second series of Happy Valley goes into the Tesco car park. And he says, what did I do? And then by the end of it, it's changed to, what did I do? And it's just glorious. If that doesn't sound familiar to you, it's probably because you've watched Happy Valley on Netflix and Netflix have cut that fucking scene out. 
No, 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 no. It's in the is Netflix it? one. I remember that. And I saw it oh, on okay. Netflix. Because uh, yep. they cut out so many good scenes, but that's com- another conversation. Did they? Uh, mm. Okay, well. But yeah, I thought it was great because at one point she went like that on the window and it was glorious. Uh, that doesn't work great. Hannah for just podcast, did her but... best. Hannah just did her best Labrador stuck in a car <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> impression. Right. It was amazing. Amazing. I don't know that you would actually have to have watched any of it to enjoy it because it is just a bit silly now and also like I don't fucking remember anything they're talking about I literally have no concept of of time or whatever like it's it's all gone it's just a big mess but an enjoyable one yeah shall we just briefly talking of coppers shall we talk about mother daughter copper the end of unforgotten series four we already did the start of Unforgotten, but I think given that, a massive spoiler alert, stop listening now if you haven't watched Series 4. Given that its lead character died, I feel like it would be a good time to wrap up with a little bit of a how great was Cassie Stewart slash Nicola Walker. Mickey. She was incredible. I sobbed my heart out. And even though it, it had sort of been telegraphed from the end of Episode 5, when I was like, she's going to get hit, she's going to get hit... There was still that, that hope that maybe she'd come out of it. But I tell you what, um, you know the actor's name. The guy who plays her dad, Hannah. Oh, Peter Egan. When Peter Egan sits and just listens to that answer phone message again and again at the end, I was a fucking mess. It's so beautifully done and following on in the way that Unforgotten always does stuff. It was so subtle and understated. Yeah, it's interesting. Second Breaking Bad reference here. That's what Jesse does in series three of Breaking Bad. He repeatedly rings an answer phone message and listens to it. And yeah, even though I thought of that immediately when I saw Peter Egan doing it, I still thought it was really well done. Yeah, it was great. I thought Sanjeev Bhaskar was really understatedly great in the final scene of that. Yeah, so good. I don't really know what's going to happen going on, but I do know that Sanjeev Bhaskar is staying in it. I haven't yet seen confirmation. I mean, it could be out there and I just haven't seen it, that he's going to be the lead or whether they're bringing a new lead in. What I will say is if he is going to be the lead, I think he might be the first British Asian man or British Asian at all to lead a primetime crime drama, which would be a good thing. Partly because he's fantastic and partly because obviously that is a milestone. Yeah, it's such... A good series and it's so hard to imagine it moving forward without the character of Cassie and without Nicola Walker but the fact is that last episode she wasn't yeah. in it and it was still a really really good watch there are a lot of excellent character actors in there doing brilliant stuff so I would definitely tune in for series five. I think because they did that at the end because they had to take time out from the main story in order to deal with her story a couple of the resolutions in terms of the actual crime were, were given a bit of a short shrift. Liz White, who was so excellent in that scene where she goes really manic and starts telling her kids all the terrible things she's done. <laughs> and then when the police come in, she just looks down and it's so brilliant. Her storyline didn't really have much of a resolution, I found. And what I really liked about the last series was that all of the characters, regardless of whether they were intricately involved in the storyline, whether it turns out that they were the murderer is essentially what I'm saying, that they still got some sort of resolution at the end of it. And I don't feel like that happened necessarily with this one. But I will say again, I thought Susan Lynch was fucking magnificent. She does so much with so little. 
And that scene at the end where the where she says to the copper, when I come out of prison, I'm going to work at, at fixing this. And he says to her, that's what you've spent the last 30 years doing. And she goes, oh, thank you. But then she tries to hold it together. I thought she was amazing. Susan Lynch is so great. She is. I've also got to say that Andy Nyman, who was revealed, his character was revealed as the murderer. He is the most sympathetic killer that we've had since series two yeah. when obviously that series is mind-blowing it's so good and so different to the evil of mm. alex jennings in series three and i thought that was really well handled because obviously in series two they kind of get away with it but in series four he is arrested he is going to go to prison but you do feel so sorry for him really i don't want to say anything negative particularly well, you can say something negative but, if you want to. Yeah, yeah well, I think the only you. thing... No, I mean, I liked it. I think it's great. Obviously, yeah, absolutely ruined when, when Cassie dies. Like, it's it's it was utterly horrific. I have to say that my all of my attention shifted onto that and I became way less bothered about who committed the crime and, and what was going to happen there and far more concerned about whether or not Cassie was going to make it. And, I, you know, I think it was probably fairly obvious that she wasn't going to but like you say Mick there's always sort of hope but yeah I I just think all of my attention got sucked into that part of it and as a result I wonder how I I wonder how a fifth series without her is gonna be I'm sure you know I'm sure they'll find a way of doing it and keeping it you know as as sometimes it it really works the bridge which is it's not a brilliant TV series, but it's a brilliant watch, which is, uh, which it's is the fun. difference. Yeah, it's fun to watch. When Martin went at the end of series two, I was like, I don't know how they're going to replace Martin. I really don't, because not only was Martin a really good character and, you know, Kim, Kim Road, is that what he's called? It'll come to me. Apologies. He's brilliant. It was the relationship between... Saga and Martin that made it so watchable for me. So I was like, oh, this is fucked now then. How is it going to exist? But it did and it carried on and it managed to create something else. So I think Jen's raised uh, an interesting point there because it was it was that shift in attention. And I think that was exacerbated by and I think this is the first time it's happened in Unforgotten. The victim wasn't necessarily a very sympathetic character. Yeah. Well, no, either. series two. And I thought series that was two, the victim's not a sympathetic character. That is true. That Yeah, that's true. But th- it was hard to know who to sympathise with, whereas in series two, you quite quickly know who you're sympathising with. But you're right. But the victim was so hard to sympathise with. I think that's really interesting. Like, we should still care because he had people. His brother was, like, devastated. He left a, a son behind who never got to meet him. Would he have met him anyway? It's. I thought it was a really interesting victim to tackle. Yeah. But yeah. did that mean that your attention was more easily shifted than, say, when it was the twin sister who had been killed as a young girl? It's interesting, yeah. isn't it? I think it's just interesting from a kind of moral standpoint. Agreed. Let's talk about one more ITV drama. I took one for the team and watched another ITV drama. It turns out Jen also watched it. So thanks, Jen. You told me you weren't going to watch any ITV dramas and then you watched it. But it does mean we can talk about it together, which is unusual. Um, which is... Too Close, which was three parts over three nights on ITV this Monday, this Tuesday, this Wednesday, all still available to watch on the ITV hub. Starring 
Emily Watson and Denise Goff and directed by Sue Tully. So that's a, Susan Tully. For I didn't anyone. know that. Michelle yeah, Fowler. Who now has been a, a director of TV for a really long time and does some good stuff. So that's like good pedigree. I believe it started off as a book and it's an adaptation. It's about, i tell you what it is. It's ITV's crack at the Cinder. Uh, oh, okay. Why done it? A woman, a mother, drives her car into a river with her uh, with two children in the back. And Emily Watson is a psycho analyst, psychiatrist, forensic psychologist. Forensic psychologist. Thank you, Jen. Sent in one of those things. Sorry, you did a really big pause there, and I thought you were like Emily Watson is a psycho, and she sent to try and work out what has caused this. But she clearly has some backstory of trauma herself. So in many ways, it feels like, like I say, basically a rerun of The Sinner. I thought it was all right, which is actually good for an ITV drama, but it remains merely all right. I thought there's some really interesting issues in here that were tackled in slightly the wrong way. And there might be a better drama just screaming, trying to get out about the over-medication of women who say that they're depressed. I think there's a drama in there. But because it was wrapped up in this thing that felt the need to be a thriller at the same time, those elements of it were slightly lost. I think Denise Goff was good. When she's in her non-manic state, I think Susan Tully said to her, just play it like she's Sarah Pascoe. And that's what she did. It was. I thought it was quite uncanny. Emily Watson, always reliable, but quite dour in this, obviously, because she's a woman who's grieving. And it felt like they needed a bit of life, a bit of humour somewhere, even if it's just some black humour in there, just to leaven it, because it was quite a heavy-duty watch. Jen, tell me what you make of it. I've only watched one and a half episodes so far, but I will probably watch the rest of it. So I haven't really gotten to the bit you're talking about about over medication i don't i don't feel like i've really gotten to that yet i'm enjoying it there's aspects about it that i find a bit i can it's a bit like oh like psycho woman psycho mother psycho husband sort of like oh you know mad woman tropes that are a bit tropey <laughs> i know i've i've put that in I've Jen, could, you, that could you say that again without any of the jargon please uh, well I don't know I, Hannah do you agree with that it's it's a bit I, it's a bit I feel it's a bit like labored like it's been done before but I'm quite enjoying watching it having seen the whole of it maybe the early episodes are trying to fit into a trope they're trying to say this is the trope of women who are mad and this is the reality of women who have mental health problems and so Everyone treats her like she's some really vicious bitch. Because I'm telling you, that's mm. what would happen if it were any to yes. a woman. The backlash to her, if she did something like that, would be would be huge. I feel like because it's so amped up at the start, and there are moments where they feel like they're trying to edge you down a road of, is she going to start haunting Emily Watson? Is she going to start stalking Emily Watson? I, I don't think it needs that stuff, because I think it, what it actually needs is is... A focus that says some women can't cope and the pressure put on those women that can't cope by society is huge one last thing to say it's got jamie sives in it and i love him and i still think that people should give him a decent role i think he's been given two decent roles in about 20 years and this isn't one of them let's have a break and come back and talk about 
A couple of documentaries, including one that we've all watched, which is the Tina Turner documentary. Hooray. Okay, welcome back. Mickey, I've done a lot of talking. I think you could probably talk us through the Tina Turner documentary. Not that I don't have thoughts, but I can certainly have them after you've had yours. Take it away, Mick. Thanks. So only true icons get to just go by their first name. And this film puts it all in capitals. (laughs) Tina! So there's no doubt that Tina Turner is a bona fide fucking legend. That voice, those towering performances, that sheer bloody-mindedness that took her from being considered part and parcel with the violent man who ruled her life and career to a solo artist known and adored the world over. That she is not yet in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for her solo work remains a travesty. Sort it out, numbnuts. Sophie Kay. When I talked to her about women in rock, she she did actually say that. And that name, Tina, was hard won, as this documentary from HBO reminds us. It was the only thing the woman who began her life as Anna Mae Bullock walked away with when she divorced the abusive Ike Turner, who had controlled her life since she was 17. Now, I'm going to do something Hannah hates now. Sorry, mate. I am going to put myself into this review, because my mum, Anne, thinks Tina Turner is her spirit animal. They share a birthday of November the 26th, albeit a decade apart, and solo Tina, raw, energised, single and rocking it, came into my mum's life when Anne was also out of an abusive relationship and single, although probably not much feeling like she was rocking it. Private Dancer came out in 1984 and was the soundtrack to our every road trip, joined by Break Every Rule in 1986, and I still know all the words to all the songs on those albums. We went to see Tina live in 2000 and it was every bit as evangelical as the footage from those stadium gigs suggests. My mum's hero flying above our heads on a massive crane. And then in 2019, for my little Ma's 70th birthday, I took her to see Tina the Musical in London and we held hands, sang along and sobbed our hearts out. So I was always going to like this documentary is what I'm saying, but I full on loved this documentary. Although, I've got to say, because it doesn't shy away from charting the abuse that Tina has endured, it can be a hard watch at times. And the bit that really struck home to me in this particular documentary about Tina is that the fact that she initially told the world of the abuse she suffered at the hands of Ike Turner so that she could move on, so that she could forget it, but found that the world would not stop asking questions and she is visibly re-traumatised Every time she reluctantly answers those questions, which is so tough to see. And, you know, raises really big questions about how we treat celebrities. I think we need to treat them better is the easy answer. But I do hope the fact that she undoubtedly helped so many women come to terms with what has happened to them is at least some sort of solace. And I did... Out loud cheer when, after Ike Turner's death, he was described by one news source as being best remembered as the abusive husband yeah. of Tina Turner. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's not an objective documentary in that it makes no bones about loving its subject. And, you know, fair enough, Tina Turner's husband, Erwin Back, is the exec producer. There's clearly a lot left untold. So is it excellent as a documentary? No. But I think because her story is... A really familiar one and this film sums up that life throwing in some great unseen footage and photos and a fresh interview with the woman herself it's still a really enjoyable watch and there's also a real poignancy because it feels like a goodbye to tina turner she's going to be 82 this year and in the interview done specifically for this film she still looks incredible strong poised still beautiful at 80 
But then there are those shots of her attending the mm. premiere of Tina the Musical when she'd have been 79. And she looks incredible, yes. But there's also a frailty in her step. And I found that utterly heartbreaking because, mm. you know, she's an old lady now. But man, what a life. What a woman. I'm going to say I don't agree with you when you said it's not a great documentary because I would say I think almost the opposite. I think it really is a good documentary that's just maybe not a good... Okay, I thought it was fantastic. And I, like you, I grew up around a lot of women who were in shit marriages and I knew a lot of women who loved Tina Turner because she did something Mm. that they couldn't do. So... I feel quite strongly about her, even though I'm not a huge fan of her music. Although, oddly, I find watching her literal performance, put it on, if you put it on a CD, I find it quite average. Like, I'm not a huge fan of Tina Turner, but watching her, she is amazing. So I think there's something, something so brilliant to see in that. But going back to my original point, as someone who's not a huge Tina Turner fan, I found a lot to enjoy in it. I don't think it's necessarily a comprehensive documentary of Tina Turner. And like you say, they specifically say at the end, this is kind of a goodbye. So it has got a kind of hallmark energy about it. But I think what it's a really great documentary about is about the woman who was pretty much the first woman to stand up and say, my husband beat me. And what happened after that happened. That, I think, it's a fantastic documentary. And therefore, I would say that... I'm quite pleased that race isn't the focus of this. It's in one point and it's one thing that somebody says and I can't repeat it here because it's so fucking shocking. And I think that one statement says it all. I think it's worth it's worth adding that this comes from a, an exec at yes. a record label. It's probably oh, worth yeah, putting yeah. that out. But yeah, everything else you said. I think what on. it says about women, older women trying to build careers, what it says about people trying to change careers. One of the questions she actually gets asked by a journalist on this, and you hear them say it is, yes, is, and there, I went, fucking is hell. there something you really want to forget? Yes, fuck off and stop bringing it up. Why would you ask that question? Tell me the worst fucking thing that haunts you, basically. It was just awful. Mm. That line that line you mentioned from the, the exec at Capitol Records is in Tina, Turn, in Tina the Musical, and the whole audience just went, oh! <gasps> You felt it. The other thing that I found quite interesting was, from the point of view of kind of contextually, how many fucking shit toxic men she had to deal with that weren't Ike Turner. I mean, you see her working with Phil Spector, right? Although, to give Phil Mm. Spector his due, it's probably, he probably, that's the best song she's ever done, the best performance. So let's separate art from artists. And it is, and it's also, it's the first time that someone gets her in a room without Ike. Mm. It's the start of the breakup of that toxic relationship, which is incredible. And then you see her being interviewed alongside Mel Gibson. And, And also the other thing to say about this documentary is it does have the most glorious collections of photographs of a young Tina Turner looking... I'm not going to say beautiful because I don't think she's beautiful, but man, is she hot. Like, seriously hot. I think she's beautiful. Very attractive. like, crazy hot. Yeah, no, she's sensationally hot, isn't she? Yeah, I I don't know if I loved it, but I do kind of love her, if you see what I mean. 
like the documentary. I do. I don't. I don't. I've watched What's Love Got to Do with It, the film about her, obviously with Angela Bassett playing her and um, Lawrence Fishburne as um, as Ike Turner. I remember watching that as a teenager, and I feel like I've watched it quite a few times, and I have no idea why. I literally have no idea why because I was probably about sixteen when I watched it the first time and for some reason I felt like I really identified with her and I, I, I honestly don't know why because obviously I was a teenager and I had not been in a domestic like I didn't know anyone who had or like wasn't aware of anyone who had or, or anything like that but I just like I just completely fell in love with her and I just remember the scene that they talk about in the in the documentary when they're in the back of the car I think she's amazing and I love her and I think like fucking hell imagine going through all that and coming out the other side of it and starting again in the way that she did and against all of the people who were just like nah like what not interested in you why would I be interested in you again in the face of all of that coming through it and just being like you know turning into the icon that that she did it's just like it's incredible like the rebirth of her is just you know, just such an incredible story. I wasn't sure if I loved the documentary, but I do love her. So I'm kind of in the same camp as you, basically, Mick, is what oh, I'm no, saying. No, I, I loved the documentary, so you're not in the same camp okay, as me. Okay, well, then I'm not brilliant. in the same camp as you. But, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I didn't necessarily think it was, like, the best documentary ever, but I did, but I love it's, her. It's interesting so, yeah. as well, isn't it, that she's one in a sort of a long line of artists that Europe got... And they talk about that a lot, that Europe got and America, and America didn't, didn't get, which is possibly why they don't talk about race as much, because it's a different issue over here than it was over there. Do you know what's really interesting about race? And it isn't it isn't brought up very much. You're right. And it, and it is a lot more in Tina the Musical. And the, the documentary, I mentioned that because the documentary follows a very similar pattern to the musical. But without saying anything, looking back at how shit her makeup was in various photos, and you can see she looks grey in some photos, her face doesn't match yeah. the rest of her body, and it, it tells a story without actually verbalising yeah. it about how she was ignored. People, black women, were ignored because makeup wasn't made for them. Films in camera weren't made for them. Lighting, the fact that these, yeah. Yeah, lighting wasn't made for that skin yeah. tone. And yet she still, like exudes this incredible hotness as you say from every photo but you can see that the, the makeup doesn't do her justice it doesn't do to her what it does to white she women it's fantastic in the early days yeah. when she did it herself but so yeah you, i think what i mean is i think if they'd focused on race they it would have left the suggestion that tina turner is an inspiration to black women and that as well may be true but i think tina turner is allowed to be an inspiration to all women and also oh, to yeah. all people. When they go through that crowd, it's phenomenal to see 18, 19, 20-year-old boys in that crowd, really. Boys that would ordinarily, in another universe, be into rap or, like, Guns N' Roses or whatever else was around at that time. And they weren't. They were into Tina Turner. I think it's interesting because I don't really think... I, I, I can't think of a comparable artist to her who would sort of, you know had that kind of rebirth or whatever at the age that she did. And she wasn't actually that old. She was about 40, wasn't she? But um, mm -hmm. so, so she wasn't actually, you know, particularly old, but she was considered to be old. And I, I can't think, I, I think now, like, you, for, for one, like, you don't really get 
icons like that anymore, I don't think. Or if you do, they're, for, they're catered to a much, much younger audience. So you have like the big stadium tours and people going wild and whatever. But I, I can't think of like a contemporary artist like comparable to her, apart from Beyonce maybe. But like, apart from that, She's astonishing as well. So mm. when I saw her live in 2000, she was 60 yeah. and she was striding across that stage. She was dancing, throwing those moves. I can't walk up the stairs and then talk to the cat because I'm yeah. out of breath. She is doing those incredible dance moves, so energetic. And then that voice belts out. She is just, I think you're right, Hannah, when you said, you know, I still love the CDs, but you don't get like a, a tiny bit of what you get when you mm. see that performance as well as hear it. She's so incredible. Let me tell you a fun story to end Tina Turner on. Don't end Tina Turner, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> My sister went to see Tina Turner in uh, Woburn Safari Park. Amazing. Uh, no, I'm at Woburn, at Woburn Abbey. <laughs> that would have been no, amazing. No, it's wrong. At Woburn Abbey, which is quite near to Newport Pagnell. I would say in the mid probably the early 90s and there was a really big light show apparently and the lights going around in the sky caused people true story in the local area which is where i grew up people to call the police and say that they thought that aliens were landing <laughs> oh bless me and in many myself. ways in many ways tina turner is strangely alien she's so incredible She's 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 almost yeah she's a she's like a superhuman she's like yeah she's a goddess I mean it's she overused is, but she is genuinely a goddess yeah yeah I love her anyway you can watch that documentary which is originally by HBO you can watch that on Sky and I think that you should last thing to say is I've watched one more documentary currently 175 years since the potato famine in ireland last year rte which is national broadcasting company so like the bbc released a two-part documentary and i was hoping it would come over here and it didn't some kind soul has put it onto youtube thank you whoever did that so i've watched that i wouldn't ordinarily advise people to go to youtube to watch stuff because you should watch it on the proper telly and pay your money for it. However, if they're not going to put it on and you're interested in two hours on the potato famine and why the fuck not? What I found interesting about it was I don't think I learned that much that I didn't already know about the potato famine, which is singularly the most important thing that ever happened in Ireland and changed the country forever. The statistics around it are absolutely terrifying. I always find it sort of particularly interesting because the the worst affected town in the uh, potato famine in Ireland. That is a town called Belmullet in Mayo. That's where the Dunleavies come from. So I find it sort of quite interesting from that point of view. But what I found super interesting about watching it, having now lived through uh, a disaster myself, a bit like with the Lucy Worsley thing, you can start to see connections in what happened then and what is still happening mm -hmm. now in the way that things are dealt with. And although they don't, openly address that especially because this is an rte documentary so when they're talking about the british government you know that's no longer their government so they don't necessarily make the comparison from what was happening then to in their country to it, whereas it's pretty clear if you can watch it in this country that that is still our government that you're talking about 
I think the comparisons are extraordinary and I think that's why they should show it over here. I mean, Trevelyan, Charles Trevelyan, the guy who ran the Irish situation from London, I mean, it's very hard not to look at him and see Dominic Cummings. It's really, really hard not to. His argument was basically that this would clear out Ireland. This would get rid of a lot of the lowest quality people. This is what, you know, the people who needed the most help. That's what Trevelyan believed, basically, that it would be survival of the fittest or thinning of the herd or those sort of words that you think. It wasn't basically that Dominic Cummings argument (laughs) about how who was going to die in this. And also that the government would come up with these schemes and they would say, "Okay, we're going to do soup kitchens. And then when that didn't work, we're going to do like these work gangs and we're going to do this and we're going to. And they would stop one and then think of another. And they never thought about what would happen in the period between one of them stopping and the next one kicking in. So you would have six, eight weeks of people saying, yeah, we're going to do you a soup kitchen thing, but we just need to plan it. And that reminds me, of course, of what was what happens with the school dinners thing, Mm. you know. But but you can have school dinner next week, and you're like, but what's going to feed them now? Yeah. What is going to feed them now? It's like that classic thing that I don't know who was it said it. I don't, it was one of Franklin D. Roosevelt's staff was asked to do something, and they said we need to long term plan, and he said people don't eat in the long term, and yeah. that is really what we should look at and remember now. And so it, yeah, if you're interested in wondering how the British government hasn't changed that much in 175 years. Get yourself on YouTube and see RTE's two-part, I think it's called, the. I should know what it's called, really. I think it's called The Great Famine. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, not awesome. No. Well, awesome maybe in its original meaning, like that's something yeah. like that, that sort of scale. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it sounds really interesting is what I'm trying to say in my very cat-handed manner. <laughs> Right, we've all got things to do and we've been talking for 46 minutes, so let's stop this now. Thank you and we will be back in May. Hannah, just before you go, I just want to say to you guys, you're simply the best. Aww. <laughs> Hannah's been that- sick on the podcast. <laughs> do you know what? That was my... The best thing about the Tina Turner documentary was basically that I really don't it's like shit, that song. I really, it's not really shit. I like disagree with it. You could not like it, but that song is not shit. You put it on at a certain point, and even people who don't like it will be like tapping along to it. It's an incredible song. I don't like it, but what I will say is they hold it back until right at the end, and then they show a live performance of it. So that's better than playing it on the soundtrack completely. And anyway, Mickey, I agree with you. I am. <laughs> Outside the box.